And so my topic this morning um, is one thing, fog or focus. And I have a picture up here that I pulled off the internet. It's a nautical chart. I'm, I'm much more of a whitewater kayaker and canoeist than I would be a boater that would be using this. But I have a question for you. And the question, if there is any, are any boaters here, if you were looking at this chart, what would be the most important thing for you to know? Numbers. The numbers? What about the numbers? What, they mean. what the numbers mean? Certainly, um, we have channels, probably depths of water, interesting little sign down here, kind of danger zone. That's really not the most important thing. What? Where it's safe? How to swim. <laughs> I like that. Probably even if you know how to swim. Anyway, it's a distance. Direction. Hmm? Direction. Direction of what? North, south, east, west. North, south, you know, where the direction on the compass is. Currents. Currents, which way the currents are going. Those are, these are all really important things. You've got some good maritime folks here. How many what? How many people know the Lord in there? Okay, well, here's an evangelistic way to look at the map. That's good. That is the most important question. Where am I on the map? You can know everything about the depth and the currents and the direction, but if you don't know where you are on the map, it's useless. Now, if you're good at maps and you had all this information, you might be able to determine where you were if you didn't know. But that is really the essential thing. And that's kind of what I want to talk about this morning is as leaders, knowing where we are and where we're going. Um, a couple of years ago, I took a, a leadership class and someone shared this with me, thought it was very insightful. And the speaker said that a leader is knowing what to do, knowing why it should be done, and also knowing how to bring the appropriate resources together to accomplish that task. Knowing what to do, why it should be done, and how to gather the resources, and those resources could be monetary resources, they could be people, time, materials, whatever is involved in that. But the important point for us this morning is knowing what to do. And oftentimes, leaders find themselves uncertain as to where they are on the map. Certain things happen in their life, and this isn't just for leaders, that's who we're talking about this morning, the leaders in training, some of the students that are here, some of us who have had experience for a long time, but both, both in leadership and personally or experientially, oftentimes we lose our bearings. We're really not sure what to do. And so it's important for us to kind of come back to that. And so I want to use a little illustration now, um, I think I actually shared this here at Utrecht Pines a few years ago. 
And that is oftentimes leaders, or at times, leaders find themselves in what I'd like to call a fog. Now, if you're driving down a highway and you've got the nicest car, if my son was here, I could ask what the nicest car is and he'd probably tell me, Frank is our car man. Bugatti. What? Bugatti. A Bugatti. I don't even know what that is. Um, see? What do I know about cars? Now, you want to talk about kayaks? That's a different story. Um, so if we're driving down into Bugatti, which must be a really nice car, Frank likes it, and all of a sudden fog comes down on the road, does it matter how much horsepower is under the engine? No. Why? Because you really can't see what you're doing or where you're going. And when leaders find themselves in a fog, that's a time of danger. Every leader, at some point in their experience, finds themselves in a fog. They lose focus. Sometimes leaders feel like they're, they're juggling a lot of balls. Or you've probably seen those individuals who spin plates, you know, and they have lots of these plates. And you're spinning all these plates, but you're not doing well, and you know it. You're, you've lost your clarity, and you know it. You're dropping balls, you're dropping plates, and you know it. And so the question is, how do we get out of fog? And we're going to come back to that. But oftentimes when we are in fog, when we've lost our focus, when we're not really clear as to where we are on the map or what direction we should be taking, we become fatigued. We become tired in what we're doing. We lose our energy. We lose our commitment. We lose the motivation to continue. That's an, un, that's an unfortunate state. Now, again, it, it happens to leaders. Uh, I, you know, those of you that are um, kind of new in your leadership trajectory, your emerging leaders, have lunch or breakfast or walk with somebody that's been in the ministry for a long time and ask them a question. Have you ever experienced that? Uh, I'm sure you're going to get the answer, yes. Because every leader falls into this. And when we're fatigued, then we begin to have flirtation. And I'm not particularly talking about flirting guys and girls, although men and women, that can happen. I'm talking about the kind of flirtation that comes about when we begin to think maybe the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. And I begin to flirt with this idea, you know, I should move on to another pasture. Now, there's times when it is time for us to move on. Um, actually, there's times when we should be moved on, actually. We need wise nurserymen that can transplant trees, Ellen White's expression, where individuals have been in a position for too long for their own spiritual health, and it's time to move on, oftentimes a difficult situation. But here I'm talking about when we're in this fog, when we've lost kind of our focus, we're not really sure what we're doing, and we realize it, our, our job has lost the enjoyment, we don't have this clarity, we're not sure where we are on the map, we begin to get tired, we begin to flirt with other ideas, and begin to think, I need out. It happens to every leader, but exceptional leaders try to find a way out of that fog quickly. They realize they're in that fog, and then they're like, okay, somehow I've lost my bearings, I need to reset. 
when we reset, and we'll talk about how we can do that in a moment, when we re- reset, instead of fog, we have focus. Something's clear for us. We know what our purpose is. We know where we are on the map. We know what needs to be done. We know why it needs to be done. And we may not know how to get the resources, but at least we're engaged. When we have focus in our lives, physically, mentally, spiritually, when we're clear in the direction that God's leading us, moving us, then we have a fresh experience. We don't wake up in the morning dreading getting involved in our ministry. We wake up in the morning like, yeah, I know what needs to be done. And I'm keen, I'm engaged in accomplishing that task. And when we have that, then we're faithful in what the Lord's called us to do. And again, this cascading of ideas starts when we begin to lose our vision, we begin to lose our focus, we're really just not clear where on the map we are. Have you ever experienced that? I've said most leaders do. Yes? Yeah. This is a real experience. And so um, the question for us, again, as I said, is that every leader goes through this. Every leader needs to come out of it. The more quickly we can come out of it, the better. The more successful leaders, successful in God's view, have a way of coming out of that fog quickly. How can we do that? Well, I'd like to suggest two things this morning as we go into this presentation. And the first is taking time away. Taking time to step back. So let me ask you a question. Again, um, a friend of mine shared this with me. Does it make sense to you to spend 2.5% of your time so that the other 97.5% can be more effective? Does anybody have a problem with that concept? 2%, I mean, even 10% of your time, so 90%. But just 2.5% of your time, taking that to step back to realize where you should be going, to try to get your focus. So, you know, if you took a half a day a month, that's about 2.5% of the time in a month, take a half a day of the month to step back and think, Am I, do I know where I am on the map? Am I in focus? The problem is we, we don't do that, largely. You know, we've got all those plates spinning, and we think if I stop, what's going to happen? Well, they're going to come crashing down. Well, the truth is they're going to come crashing down if you don't stop. Or somebody can slip a spinning plate into your hand that you really shouldn't be engaged in. So taking time away, half a day a month. Leaders, you know, um, uh, uh, Maring shared yesterday from Riverside Farm, and when he was sharing some of the pictures, I leaned over to a friend of mine and said, why do I live any place other than at Riverside? I mean, <laughs> those in the know realize that Riverside is among the most beautiful places in the world. Um, and I, I worked there for several years, and when I was there, I would take, time every, every month, and I would go up on the mountain. There's a kind of a, not a mountain mountain, but a 
escarpment that overlooked the campus. Some of the pictures that he showed yesterday were taken from there. And just think, okay, so where's, where's this organization going? Where am I going? Am I in focus? Some people find it very helpful to keep a journal and write down, you know, are, are things clear? You keep a journal. I know I keep a journal periodically. I'm not very consistent in it. But I can know when I'm going through a very difficult phase because I don't write down when things are difficult. I, that's my personality. Kind of like whew, close in. And I close in from myself. How bizarre is that? Um, and so I don't write them down. But to take time back helps us focus. Half a day a month or two to three days a year or a week just to step back and think, am I really in focus? Am I really focusing on the one thing that's most important? And we'll come, come back to that. The other aspect of regaining focus is to ask questions. To ask questions. Um, great questions are the quickest way to great answers. Learn to ask questions of, of everybody. You know, just collect questions. I collect questions, and I'm going to share one with you in a, in a little bit that um, Craig shared with me. And, but, but asking questions is really important. Asking questions, um, listening to um, uh, a gentleman talk about a person that he was asking himself a question, same question for about three years. And so this leader said, well, you're asking yourself the same question for three years. What is that question? And so the gentleman said, what is important? The guy said, that's the question. What's important? And uh, the guy said, well, so what are you finding? And the answer was, less and less. (laughs) There's a lot of truth to that. We think a lot of things are important. And a lot of things are distractions. And it's vital for us, as we look at our map, try to figure out where we are and where we're going, to realize what is the one thing that's most important. That's what we want to look at this morning. Um, From the magazine Southern Watchman, that would be February 23rd, 1904, Christian workers can never attain the highest success until they learn the secret of strength. They must give themselves time to think, to pray, to wait upon God for a renewal of physical, mental, and spiritual power. That's a tremendously powerful thought. If we want to reach the highest success, what do we need to give ourselves? Time. Time away. If you spend 2.5% of your time organizing the 97.5%, is that worth it? It is. If I spend a little time in the morning organizing myself for the day, is that worth it? Of course. But we need to give ourselves time to think, to pray, to wait upon God. And then this is really interesting. You know, how does praying, thinking, and waiting upon God renew you physically? I don't know. But we need time to think, pray, probably because it releases stress and it gets our minds focused on big ideas and 
Probably a good physiological aspect there. Renewal, physical, mental, and spiritual power. So every leader can lose focus. Good leaders regain focus quickly. How? They have scheduled time away to refocus. Also, they have some internal habits that they use, whether, again, it's writing or they have somebody that they communicate with, some way to find out, okay, really am I on track? Another way they do it is by asking questions. So here's a question for you. Um, As I said, Craig shared this with me in a book. And the question is, what is the one thing I can do that by doing it makes everything else easier or unnecessary? What's the question? What's the one thing I can what? Oh, what does that mean? There's an action. What's the one thing within my sphere? What's the one thing I can do that by doing it, now here's a bridge to something else, will make everything else easier or unnecessary? There's three parts of this question that are really important. There's what's the one thing I can do? Here's the practical aspect. There's lots of things we see that needs to be done, right? I mean, there's so much that needs to be done. Um, We just had our OCI board meeting. Uh, In June, we had the strategic plan. We have, you know, a five-year plan. We have all these. I've got a lot that could be done. What's the one thing I can do now? That by doing it will make everything else easier or unnecessary. This is a bridge to a bigger picture. I want you to notice very important two parts of this. First of all is the very large part of it, that there is something else I'm going toward. There's this larger goal, but there's also a small component, and that small component is what's the one thing I can do now. In other words, by going small, I can have a big impact. Too often, we just focus on the larger part of it. I have all this that needs to be done. How am I going to do these things? Sometimes we need to step back and break our problems down into smaller pieces. Many years ago, um, I worked uh, with the United Nations, the World Food Program, and we had the task of feeding about 50,000 people a month. It was during a time of drought in, in Zambia. And... So 50,000 people a month, I mean, that's a lot of people to feed. And we had to transport grain, food for these people. And so we had a fairly large region. And when I first looked at it, it was like, well, this is way too big. So again, to break it down, okay, well, now we have five regions. And then in every region, we need to have so many centers. And for every center, I need to find a leader. So the one thing I could do was to begin to find leaders for these centers that would then make the entire thing easier. Going small helps with the big picture. And I want to illustrate this. Um, in 1983, the American Journal of Physics found out that one domino can knock over a domino 50% larger. Okay? One domino can knock over 
a domino. So the end domino in this little schematic is quite large, not as tall as this person. But the first domino is quite small. And when you knock over that first one, it creates a chain of events, which eventually knocks over the larger one. What's the one thing I can do? What is the one small action I can take that will put into effect or, or put into motion a series of events that makes everything else easier? Now, many of us have probably heard of the Pareto principle from an Italian economist. And he was, Pareto principle basically says that 20% of the people generate 80% of the wealth. And he was looking at it in terms of economics. And it's been translated out. You know, if you look at a church, roughly 20% of the people do 80% of the work for a lot of churches. The principle there, forget the numbers 20 to 80%, that's not really important. But the principle is that certain things have a disproportionate result for the effort and energy you put into them. And so asking this question, what's the one thing I can do, so that by doing it, everything else becomes easier or unnecessary, by asking that question, I'm forcing myself to think small in order so that I could have a large impact. I'm beginning to think, okay, what is that 20% activity that's going to give me an 80% result if I want to use that illustration? How many of you in your life or in your ministry, you make lists. The list makers are here, okay. How many of you would describe yourself as goal-oriented? How many of you like to solve problems more than make goals? <laughs> uh, let me just share something here. Um, you know, a lot of the talk about how to succeed in things, there's a lot of value on making lists, and there really is a lot of value on making lists, if, in fact, you pay attention to it and you just don't make it and throw it away. Um, But making lists forces you to think of certain goals, right? But, you know, not everybody is goal or task-oriented. Other people are much more oriented towards solving problems. And when you meet a goal-driven person and a problem-solving person you can have collisions. Why? Well, a goal-oriented person, they, you know, they want to do this, and they think we should do this, and this is what should happen. And the problem-solving person is like, wait a second, what about this? How, what, how's this going to take place? Um, marriages sometimes fall apart because people don't recognize this difference. But it's really, it's really important. It's really true. If you happen to be a problem-solver, that's a tremendous advantage. And goal-oriented people need to realize what an advantage that is because without the problem-solving people, you know, those visionary people ruin everything. Um, (laughs) But when you're making a list, oftentimes we make a list and we try to prioritize. Hopefully, at least if you make a list, you try to prioritize, you know, these are my top 10 things to do or top five things to do. The principle that I'm trying to share this morning of drilling down smaller is to take that top 10 and say, okay, what's my top two? 
out of my top 10? And out of my top two, what's my top one? What is the one thing that I can do that by doing it, everything else becomes easier or unnecessary? Now, some um, creative individuals decided to take this domino test, and they actually did a test. I think this was in the Netherlands. Look at the size of that thing. Um, Just 50%. One little domino will knock over one a little bit taller. You get this progression. I think if you started with a regular-sized domino and then you increased uh, 50% in size, when you got to number 10, you're about the size of Peyton Manning. Um, You get a little bit higher. Pretty soon, you're like the size of the Eiffel Tower. Pretty soon, I think like number 28, you're the size of Mount Everest. I mean, there's a geometric progression that builds. That's just a physical illustration of the effect of going small in our thinking and being focused and realizing, okay, there are some very important things that I can do. So again, our question, what's the one thing I can do? And there are different areas of our life in which we need to ask this question. What's the one thing I can do spiritually so that by doing it, it makes everything else easier or unnecessary? How would you answer that question? In your spiritual life, what's the one thing you could do that you know would make the rest of your spiritual journey easier? Pray. How many of you would agree with that? Quite a few. I mean, there may be something else in your life that's a hindrance, but so there's a one thing for us not only in our spiritual life, in our physical life, our personal life, our work life, to be able to ask that question in a host of areas. Now, please, um, this is a tool to help us have focus and direction. It's not a club to beat ourselves over the head with. You know, we, I don't want anybody getting anxious out of here like, oh, what's my one thing? It's a tool to help us think, where am I on the map? What direction am I going? Oh, I really don't know I'm on the, where I am on the map. I need to step back and take time to refocus. And then when I'm focused, what is that one thing? How can I drill down? How can I find that one aspect that really is going to make everything else easier? In office, you know, at least between Craig and I, um, one of the challenges facing OCI is we embarked on this Um, Again, a strategic plan which has a great vision. OCI would like to see supporting ministries in every country in the world. Every country in the world, including Vatican, right? Uh, Every country in the world. Yemen, anywhere there's Seventh-day Adventists, there should be lay people doing ministry. So that's a big picture. Well, what's the one thing we can do today to help facilitate that? Well, there's things we can do for the field vice presidents. There's different aspects. One of our aspects is is a financial base that we're working on. So, okay, so what's the one thing here that we can do? And you begin to ask that question, it helps you put down a lot of plates because those plates oftentimes can be distracting. Now, everyone that's a leader in this room has multiple responsibilities, but too often our, our responsibilities just chase one another and they're really not 
the priorities. And truly successful leaders understand what their priorities should be. If they get lost in the fog and they realize they're getting fatigued, they take steps to refocus. They don't lose focus for long. And that's, that's really important for us. Now, this is a quote, and it covers two slides. Uh, so I'm going to read it, and then I'll tell you who said it. A very interesting quotation about the importance of focusing on one thing. Now, as I'm standing up here, and I'm you know, sharing this with you, I kind of look at you as well, and I'm one of those speakers that when I look, I kind of see you individually, you know, so, you know, cameras, messaging, different things like that. You know, we are blessed with media, I mean, technology, aren't we? Where's my phone? <laughs> there it is. You know, I was going to use it just to hang it, show it to you. See, I left it down there. But, you know, our, our phones, I mean, we're blessed, Right? You know, all the spirit of prophecy, different Bible translations, I Greek Testament on my phone. You know, do you have a question? Well, Google it. You know, it's, um, we're really blessed, but we're also faced with a curse of being distracted. So listen to this quotation. There is t- this was a gentleman writing to his son. There is time enough for everything in the course of the day. If you do but one thing at once, we would say, if you do one thing at a time. But there is not enough time in the year if you will do two things at a time. Now, what do we call that? Multitasking. I can do two things at a time. And um, you can do certain two things at a time. I'm talking and holding this in my hand. Don't task me, though. Then it goes on to say, this steady and undissipated attention to one object is a sure mark of a superior genius. As hurry, bustle, and agitation are the never-failing symptoms of a weak and frivolous mind. As Lord Chesterfield in 1740 wrote that, um, before he was tempted to text while, you know, he was listening to something. But the, the point here is the focus on one thing. So there's the question for us. Okay, this is the one thing I need to do. Great. Do the one thing. And our great danger is to think that, that we can do multiple things. And there are certain things that we can do. Please don't misunderstand me. We can walk and talk together, although C.S. Lewis had a great quote, which I agree with. He said, walking and talking are two pleasures that should never be combined. Um, <laughs> But we can do that. So there are certain things that we can do. But tasks that carry special attention, tasks that, you know, demand your one thing, frequently have to be focused on at that time. And we live in an age, most of us anyway, where interruptions are par for the course. And the real question is, How do I get this time to focus? We think that we can multitask. Um, We call it multitasking. Actually, that's a misnomer. It's better called task switching. 
And I think if we change the nomenclature about it, it would help us to see what's going on. The phrase multitasking originally came from computers that they could do one or more tasks at a time, but that's not even true. Computers don't do one or more tasks at a time. They share, they switch resources. They just happen to do it very quickly. And so we've said that we can multitask, and I can do this, and I can do this, and I can do that. But really what we're doing is we're task switching. We're moving from one task to another. Every time we switch from one task to a different task, we lose attention. And there's a time loss as well. Now, you may be thinking, yeah, but it's really insignificant. It's only, you know, maybe less than a second or a couple of seconds at most. That's a deception. It's true. If for one thing, it may be, okay, I've just lost a second or two. But when you add that up through the day, and it's not just that switching, it's the switching and the reorienting. And then like, okay, so what was I doing? Where was I in that flow? Um, when we focus, we use the prefrontal cortex. Uh, and you know that's where we try to concentrate on things. That's where our higher center of their mind is, where we make decisions. And when we're really focused on an important task, when our motivation is engaged, both hemispheres are focused on that one task. When we start task switching, the two hemispheres separate. Not physically, obviously, but the focus of those hemispheres. I wondered if that's what James meant when he talked about double-minded men. Um, when we're working on a task and we're focused, both hemispheres are working in the same direction. But when we separate our attention, we dilute the ability of the brain to focus. Going small, finding your small domino, that little thing, is ignoring the larger and focusing on a task at hand. Clifford Nass from Stanford University did a series of studies on multitaskers, um, task switchers. Really interesting. He, he actually took this, he put people in an MRI and it, all these tests people do in MRIs, I guess, but he had these backgrounds and he had blue rectangles and red rec rectangles. And he wanted people to figure out, I think there were numbers with it, but he found out that those individuals that were more prone to multitask or to task switch, those individuals that were more engaged in, in media most of the time, they found it very hard to ignore the distractions of the other colored rectangles. They just couldn't concentrate because, oh, what's this? Oh, I want to keep wanting to switch. Um, he said, multitaskers have a harder time ignoring distractions. They are, and these were his words, suckers for irrelevancy because they don't focus. They're constantly, they don't know what their one thing is. And so they spend all this time. Some studies have said that individuals that task switch frequently at work lose 28% of their time in their day. Wow, that's like almost a third of their day is gone simply because. Now, um, you know, I have a unique job. I travel a lot, and that's great. And then at times when I'm in the office, I work with a computer. That's not so great. But, you know, there's, there's email that comes in, and I wonder if I should ask this question. Like, how many times do you check your email in a day? 
All right. How many of you have checked your email twice this morning? At least twice. Mm. And the rest of you aren't being honest? or <laughs> You know, how many times do we check our email? Especially if you're working and you're in front of the computer. It's like, what do you think you're going to get? What do I think I'm going to get? I know, I check my email. I mean, I've checked mine at least twice this morning, for sure. Why do we do that? Well, there's lots of physical, chemical reactions. There's the involvement of dopamine. We, we think we're going to get something. There's this whole anticipation. There's a lot of neurochemical chemical things going on that, that really addict us to multitasking. And it's really not helpful for us. We lose almost a third of our productive day by not focusing on the one thing. Now, some of us are blessed. We live in places where we don't have such good internet connection. Blessings on you. Um, Multitaskers make more mistakes. They think things take longer than they should take. And they do take longer, but not because of the task, but because they're constantly going back and forth. So when we're on the map of the sea of life, it's important for us to know where we are, right? And when we don't know where we are, we need to use the surroundings to get our bearings so that we can plot our course. We need to take time away. We need to ask questions. What is my one thing? What is most important? And as we think about this, there's something that we can engage, and that is the power of habit. Power of habit. Now, habits are tremendously influential upon us. You know, thoughts and feelings, habits make up our character, character makes up our destiny. Here's a couple of quotations, and they're not directly related to our topic, except for a phrase in each of these quotations. First one is First Manuscript Release, page 318. It says, put away your spendthrift habits and learn habits of economy. So the phrase I really want us to pull out is learn habits. The next quotation, review and herald, January 12, 1911. From the mother, the children are to learn habits of neatness, thoroughness, and dispatch. Um, Child guidance, 129. God help us to cultivate habits of thought, word, look, and action that will testify to all about us that we have been with Jesus and learned of him. The emphasis in all those three quotations is the cultivation of habits and the learning of habits. Most of what we do is a result of habit. What shoe did you put on first this morning? Why did you say that? Did you know that most people put on their left shoe first? Now, Frank happened to notice that. Uh, I've asked this question to a number of people, and so far two people have answered, and they both said left. Interesting. Um, Do you know that? He's left-handed. There you go. Wow. Now, the point is we do a lot of things by habit. You know, we take our shoes off by habit. We put them on by habit. And habits are tremendously, it's a wonderful thing. I mean, did you, if you had to think 
about doing all those things, your brain would be overloaded. So habit is a tremendous tool if our habits are formed in the right way. We have a, lots of responses to habits, and we don't have time this morning to, to really get into the whole thought of habits, but habits are tremendously powerful. And we can develop the habit of asking the question, when we feel perplexed, when we feel in a fog, what's the one thing I should do? We had a board meeting the other day, and in the board meeting, you know, we had some issues that we were discussing and trying to figure out. And one of the board members kept bringing us back to our strategic plan. That was his habit. Well, what does a strategic plan say? We've already decided this. We don't have to discuss this anymore. We, we're going this way. That habit was tremendously helpful, I felt, on the board because it kept bringing us back. So, well, no, I need to develop that habit. We need to develop the habit of keeping in focus, of taking time away, of asking questions, of asking the one question, of not multitasking because it's a habit to try to do that. We need to develop other habits. We need to cultivate the habit of speaking well with one another. Habits require less energy to maintain than to form. That's good news. A lot of thought goes into forming a habit. But once the habit is there, it really doesn't take a lot of energy to maintain it. Now, that's good news and it's bad news um, because that means our bad habits are kind of just back there in the background lurking and we start to make bad decisions. Those habits can come back up again. But praise God, through his grace, through the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, we can cooperate with the Spirit in learning and forming new habits. Habits that make us more successful. Habits that keep us focused on the one thing, spiritually, physically, mentally. Yes? It takes about 21 days, basically, to create a good habit that will slide from there. Yeah, some people say 21 days, 18 days, 66 days. It, it could depend on your personality, but it takes time to create a habit. Um, the young violinist, Yesterday, I forgot your name, but, you know, I was just watching her play the violin. The thing about the violin, you know, there's no frets. I mean, how do you know where to put your finger? <laughs> Habit, right? You learn and you learn and you learn and your finger goes. And it's not like, oh, yeah, now where does it go? It becomes a habit. Uh, in fact, uh, kind of a football illustration, if you'll excuse me, Tony Dungy, the first um, African-American coach in the National Football League, went to Tampa Bay, which was a terrible team, Florida. And most football coaches work on plays, you know, this play and that play. He didn't. He focused the entire team to move on habit. When they saw something in the imposing team, he wanted habit to overcome, to, to take control. And he was able to take a losing team, and they actually went to the Super Bowl. Now, he did that entirely by trying to drill into the minds of the people habits. Ellen White tells us we need to teach habits. We need to cultivate habits. We need the Holy Spirit to help us recognize that we can form, this isn't salvation by works, this is cooperation with the Holy Spirit, to form good habits that bring us right responses. And in the formation of habits, there's what people often call a habit loop. Um, and the habit loop is, you know, there's a trigger, something that, there's an event, there's a trigger, and then we respond, 
and then there's a reward. So let me give you a negative example about myself. Um, when I'm confronted at times with an obstacle, a person that's not wanting to get me what I want them to get me, uh, I can have a habit default of stepping up my persuasive abilities. Let me say it that way. And, and then, you know, or talking to somebody on the telephone, well, can I talk to your manager, please? It's amazing how much you get if you ask that question. Um, but, you know, that becomes a default. Unfortunately, with that default comes this whole physiological habitual response. Now, earlier quotation I put up there, Ellen White says that we should form habits of thinking and the way we look so that people can tell we've been with Jesus. Now, I'm the first to admit there's times that my face doesn't look that way. Why? I've developed habits that go the wrong direction. And by God's grace, I need new habits. And so do you. And we need to think, what's the one thing I can do today to have habits that will bring me closer to Christ? How, how will I know what my trigger is? Oh, I know what the trigger is. Pretty easy. I can tell you what some of those triggers are. Well, how am I going to have a new habit loop? Instead of triggering and responding like this, I want the trigger to get me to respond differently. That's entirely possible through the work of the Holy Spirit, transforming our hearts and minds with our cooperation. There's one other thing I'd like to say just in closing um, as we, we think about this, and that is every leader, as they get into fog, also enters into experience at times when they lose confidence. Leaders frequently experience a time when they lose confidence. Confidence is a byproduct of predictability. We often lose confidence when things, things seem out of our control. Um, if you have a knee operation, your knee's been giving out, you know, most of us have tremendous confidence walking because everything works fine. If all of a sudden our knee started giving out, we would lose confidence in that. There wouldn't be the predictability of it. Confidence is a byproduct of predictability. When you lose confidence, and you will as a leader at some point, one of the things to do is during those times away to step back and ask some questions. What are some of the areas that God has used me in the past? What are those areas in which I do have strengths? Now, sometimes we get so lost in our confidence, uh, or we lose our confidence so much that we can't see even of those. That's one of the devil's greatest tools to bring depression. Um, and if we're in that situation, please come talk to somebody, because then we need help for other people to help us see what our strengths are. But when we've lost confidence, one of the things that's very helpful is to kind of step back and think, okay, what are some of my strengths? How has God used me in the past? And as we think about what God has done in the past, that increases our confidence for what God's going to do in the future. And I'd like to just share, end on this, this closing thing, as, um, as with OCI, we've launched in again into this strategic plan of helping uh, or encouraging, fostering, supporting ministries in every country in the world, and figuring out a financial base to do this, it's been at times very challenging. If you think about I mean, that's a big picture. 
But what's been really helpful is to drill down on the small things. How can we get a supporting ministry in every country in the world? Well, we could start small. We can start with the group here. We could start with an individual. We could start with a visit to a part of the world we don't have a ministry. We can start small. And by starting small, we can put in effect dominoes that will impact the entire world. And God wants to do the same thing in your life and in your ministry as well. Let's bow our heads together for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace. And thank you that your one thing is saving this world. And you did it beginning small by sending Jesus Christ as a baby into this world. Help us, Father, to keep focused, to have the big picture in mind, yet also to think small. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.